Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. We are looking for your support. We need you to come on board and join us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to keep these mics on and these conversations happening. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month or a cheap pint nowadays, and you get additional content to beat the band, access to our live Sunday shows, and all of these podcasts plea-free. So it's not just a one-way street. You get lots back in return. Please do consider it. The link is right there in the podcast you're listening to right now. All you got to do is tap on patreon.com forward slash tortoise on your screen and see if there's a level that you're happy to keep us going it really makes all the difference without it we don't exist thanks so much for listening thanks for the support thanks for sharing and special shout out to our members thank you so much enjoy the podcast Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined back on the podcast today by a number of our um, most regular guests to discuss the issue of the budget um, and homelessness and renters and what should be done around the housing crisis. Um, And this is part of a series of pre-budget podcasts that we've been doing, specials we've already um, covered in terms of children and poverty. We had uh, Trisha Kilty and Tanya Ward on. Um, you can listen back to that. And also we've had recently as well, we had a story there, uh, Rob Barrett, who came on and told his story of the housing crisis, which really has um, touched a lot of people. Uh, so it's really it is very difficult for a lot of people, but there are solutions, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Again, I'm joined by Louise Bayliss um, from Focus Ireland and Spark, Amory O'Reilly from Threshold, and Colette Bennett from Social Justice Ireland. Um, very interesting. Just before we start, we, of course, we saw Scotland introduce a rent freeze and a moratorium on evictions, and the question is why can't we do it here? Um, and also, we're going to have more money than ever available to the budget this year. And the question is, why, why will it not be spent on investment? So, Louise, I might go to you first. In terms of um, um, the kind of key things that you think around housing and homelessness should be in the budget, maybe a couple of, um, a couple of the key things. What do you think should be done? There's a lot that can be done, obviously, and in the budget, is, it is only part of a cycle. So it's, it, there's not a lot of long term solutions. You know, we have to hold out for housing for all is going to give us those more long term solutions. But there are some short term solutions that we need urgently um, enacted. And one of them would be, and of course, I don't agree with HAP being used as social housing, but that's where we are at the moment. And until the houses are built um, and until so- social housing is repleted, we're going to have to stick with HAP being a solution. We know it's the main exit out of homelessness at the moment. That's how most people are getting out of homelessness through a HAP tenancy. So we need supports around the HAP tenancy because what we know are people are coming out of HAP tenancies. And firstly, um, they're still subject to the, you know, the instability of the private rental market where a landlord could sell up and we know that that is happening more and more and also the affordability factor you know half rates haven't gone up since 2016 and and they're not in line with market rents so what is happening with people who agree to go out on you know take a half tenancy on the basis they don't want to be in emergency accommodation for much longer they take the half tenancy they think they can afford it they are trying to pay these enormous top-ups to landlords and they 
can't do it, you know, without actually taking food out of their off the table. Yeah. And they're ending up losing the home because of rent arrears and go ending up back in emergency accommodation. So we definitely need a review of HAP rates and we need affordability to be built into everything we do. Homelessness is linked to poverty. There is definitely a supply issue at the moment. We know that, but there is a poverty level that's there. And I suppose this and is the most just, frightening time. Just Louise, specifically on the on the HAP thing there, the government and the minister introduced this new flexibility um, or giving um, flexibility to local authorities in terms of the HAP rates um, in terms of that is my understanding brought singles up to couple um, level amount yeah. in terms of flexibility and um, the discretionary rate went from 20% to 35% so they could pay up to um, that new discretionary higher rate for across the board for HAP recipients yeah the only problem with that there's two problems with that firstly it's it, there was no change at all to homeless HAP and many people in Dublin would have already been availing of homeless HAP, so there's no relief whatsoever for them. And the second thing with it is uh, people have to apply for it and they don't know about it. We've asked the department, are they are they running an awareness campaign? They're not, but Focus Ireland are running an awareness campaign and we're trying to let people know of this additional right. And thirdly, it is a discretionary rate. And what we know from talking to the councils that some of them are do, applying it differently. So for some people they're doing the they're doing the discretionary rate and you go in, you show them and they'll give you the 35%. And others are using the rule of 30% of your of 35% of your income. So if you're paying less than 35% of your income, you don't qualify. You're not a precarious housing rate. That's what they're using. And for third, some councils are doing it literally if you're just at risk of homelessness. So there's no uniformity in how it's being applied. Um, in fact, there was a circular went out on the 9th of July advising councils. But even on that, and we've had legal opinion on it, it's very... Um, it could be misinterpreted different ways. Um, now, we're obviously pushing that everybody should be entitled to the 35%, but it is a sticking plaster on an issue that really, it shouldn't be a discretionary rate. We know that the, the HAP rates are way below what the HAP market is. We know why they were set like that. We were, They were set like that to, to you know, to so that the market wouldn't um, get overheated, but the market has been overheated without it. And what's happening is it's tenants who are stuck there trying to match these rates, trying to bridge that, that that um top up to the landlords that are really suffering. And we know that for a fact because the most recent EU silk report that came out in May, I think it was, that showed that um people on HAP are at greatest risk of poverty after they pay their housing costs. So for the general population, 90%, 19, 19.19% of people are at risk of poverty after paying housing. And that's people on mortgages and social housing, private rental, the whole thing. But people who are in receipt of a housing support like HAP or rent supplement, they're at risk of poverty after paying housing is 59.1%, which is massive. So we know these group of people are the ones who are being most squeezed. So we talk about the squeezed middle, but really who's being squeezed are HAP tenants who are trying to make up these, these um, huge top-up to landlords. So one of the things that we would really urgently be saying is, please put the top-ups to, you know, you know, bring up the whole HAP rates, no sticking plaster, make sure that the rates match the market, or else make sure that you ban a, a ban on evictions or on um on, on rent increases. There was no point in saying that landlords were legally allowed to put up their rents by 4% in RPZ zones, and yet at the same time, not put up HAP to compete with that. Like, how is that ever going to work? So if you're legally allowing 
10 landlords to put up rent. You have to match it with the half. That hasn't happened. Six years on, seven years on, people have been each year bridging that 4% year-on-year gap, and it's just crucifying them. And I think this is the first time in our history that we have this austerity, not austerity, cost of living crisis and a housing crisis at the same time. And it's people who are on to in tenancies are the ones so yes, there's so we've the highest homelessness figures at the moment that we've ever had, and even at that, we know that's hidden because the emergency accommodations are full. So we know that there are families who are have been passed as being homeless but aren't being re- recognised because they're not um, accessing emergency accommodation with the highest um, homelessness figures, and we've also got so many people at risk of 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 homelessness because of the insecurity of HAP and also because of affordability around HAP. It's a really really scary situation, and the reality is at the moment, Rory, if you receive um, your te- your notice of termination as your landlord is selling, you are at a really strong risk of ending up homelessness. And that's very fearful. And it's putting people at really um, anxiety levels. You know, every time the post box, oh, you know, there's a sound yeah. in the post box, people are terrified that that's the notice of termination. It's no way for people to live. And it's certainly no way for families to live where they're trying to put children into schools or creches or access jobs themselves. It's a, it's a very scary situation. So yeah, no, it, it, one of the things would be the hack. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's, you know, at that point is, is very well made in terms of that and the increases. And of course, rents can still increase 2% a year um, within the RPZ. Um, and we know, of course, a major problem is that there's a lot of areas in the country that aren't actually covered by the RPZ um, rules. And then, of course, new tenancies in terms of new provision of tenancies, new market um, properties don't have to subscribe to any of these rules and therefore can be at whatever rent um, is they want to charge. And the, the that issue of hidden homelessness, I was really struck by that this week. I was contacted by three people specifically who are in homelessness, have become homeless, uh, uh, a young woman, um, a family, which, uh, a lone parent with children, mother with, with three children and uh, a couple, a married couple, and each of them their situations of homelessness, none of them would actually be counted as homeless. Each of them in situations of um, not going, just literally um, terrified of going into emergency accommodation or else just couch surfing. Um, and, and I would think, I don't know what your sense of it, Louise, is that the level of hidden homelessness must be you know, significantly beyond what the existing homelessness figures are showing because they just show people who are in emergency accommodation. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Rory. And the point you made there um, is very clear. Like there are people who don't want to even access emergency accommodation because of, you know, they understand how uncomfortable it is to live in emergency accommodation. But and, and damaging, and destructive, other, and and they did, you know. Oh, and and rightly, like there's there's legitimate reasons why people would avoid emergency accommodation, especially when at the moment you could be put, as we saw last week, <clears throat> eighty three families I think were were moved to emergency accommodation outside Dublin. You know, and, and when you've young children and trying to commute for schools and everything, it's not realistic. But they're the hidden homeless that have. I suppose a self-imposed hidden homelessness and that they haven't registered for emergency accommodation. But there is that other huge cohort cohort out there hidden homelessness. It's not self-imposed. They've asked for, can I be put into emergency accommodation tonight? And they've been denied that because there was nowhere to put them. And that's scary. So you've got the hidden homeless, 
those who aren't accessing emergency accommodation and those in emergency accommodation. So the, the figure we have over 10,500 is only a tip of the iceberg. There's an awful lot more um, and probably more vulnerable because they're not accessing, not only are they not accessing emergency accommodation, but very much like what you've just said there, Rory, about the three examples you gave, they're not accessing um you know, a family hack worker, you know, mm. a housing assistance team, they're not getting to see those views. They're not getting the support to move them out of homelessness. So they're being they're being denied all of those supports as well as the emergency accommodations. Yeah. So it's frightening on a few levels. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Louise. Um, Anne-Marie, in terms of threshold, your key, I suppose, um, asks, I suppose, but recommendations for the budget, what do you think should happen? Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll be publishing actually our pre-budget submission uh, this week. So you're getting you're getting an exclusive. Fine, uh, Marie. Thank you for that. <laughs> so we are recommending that there be some sort of relief for renters. Uh, so there has been some talk over the last few months that there may be something done for landlords and your know, tax relief or something along those lines. So we are saying if something is done for landlords. Well, whether there is or there isn't, there certainly needs to be some sort of relief for renters. So up until 2010, there was a tax relief in place um, on rent paid. And we'd like to see something like that reintroduced. Uh, it was removed at the time, actually at, at a point when rents were reducing. Now, it wasn't long after that the rents started to increase again. Uh, yeah. But at the time, the reason for removing it, it was believed that as a demand side measure, it was actually only putting rents up, whereas the evidence at the time would show rents were dropping. Uh, but I suppose now we do have the rent pressure zones in place. They do cover approximately about 75% of tenancies. Um, so that is a safeguard against a measure such as this, you know, putting up um, rents uh, in any shape or form. And it is would provide some sort of financial relief to renters um, at a time when there's such demands on all of us cost-wise. Uh, we're also calling on uh, government, and we have for the last number of years, look for the establishment of a rent arrears fund. Yeah. So there is a difficulty in a determining how many people out there have arrears, what the um, rate of arrears is. But the ESRI have done studies that they estimate approximately one in 10 households would have missed a month's rent in the previous year. And that was pre-COVID, that was pre-cost of living uh, crisis. So based on that, there's a strong likelihood now that we'll see more people uh, fall into rent arrears, even though we know that renters will at all times prioritise rent over everything else because the roof over their head is the most important thing. But we're getting getting to a stage now where that may not actually be an option. There just isn't enough money to go around. So we do want to see a rent arrears fund established for when something like that occurs, when a person is unable to pay the rent, they can access, um, it could be done in a number of ways. It could be a case of a 0% loan um, or it could be that the rent arrears are paid out of the fund and the debt written off. So it has a number of advantages for both tenant and landlords. The tenant gets to stay in their home. They get to address their rent arrears and the landlord um, is paid their rent um, because there are some landlords who you know are paying a mortgage on the property. And if arrears accrue, that could place them in a financially difficult situation. So it's a win-win all around in that respect. 
uh, for both parties. And it would require some changes to uh, the manner in which rent arrears are dealt with in legislation. So currently, if you accrue uh, rent arrears, whether it's €10, €1,000 and well, considering how much monthly rent is, it's more than likely going to be something like one and a half thousand euro plus. Mm. Um, you get 28 days to pay those arrears. Yeah. Now, if those arrears have accrued because you've suddenly lost your job, um, uh, there was a sudden illness in the family or your car broke down yeah. and you've had to fork over a nice bit of money uh, to the garage, you don't you're not going to be able to find that money in 28 days. But if you don't pay that in 28 days, you then get notice to uh, leave and you get 28 days to leave that property. So you've, uh, you're in financial dire straits and suddenly you have um, that short window of time to try either come up with the money or find somewhere else to live. And that is that, that really puts people in, in an impossible situation. So we would like to see um, the establishment of a, uh, uh, rent arrears uh, scheme. And then uh, one of our other asks is that there be a dedicated homeless prevention budget. Mm. So at present, uh, homeless prevention services are funded out of the overall homeless budget. It's yeah. section section 10 funding is what it's called. The majority of homeless services are funded out of that. And within that, the local authorities decide themselves what they spend on homeless prevention. And obviously because of how bad the homeless crisis has become because of the thousands of people who are now experiencing homelessness, most of that money is directed toward emergency accommodation. The thing is, though, it means that there's less funds available to actually stop homelessness occurring in the first instance. And each year we've seen a a tiny proportion of quite a large spend um, only a tiny proportion of that spent on homeless prevention services. And we're specifically asking that there be a dedicated budget for services that stop homelessness occurring in the first instance. So services that can keep people in their home or support them to move from that home to another without ever having to go near uh, homeless services. So I suppose those are our key sort of top line asks uh, this year. There's a few others in there, including, and we it's similar to what Louise said, we do need to see an increase in the HAP base rates. While there has been some positive measures taken, the base rates do need to, to increase as well. So that's kind of the top top line items from ourselves. And in terms of, I know it's not specifically a budgetary measure, but it does have um, you know financial implications and it's something that seems to me in the context of the discussion around the tax and um, proposed tax um, mm. for tax break for landlords, such as the reduction in yeah. what appears to be mooted is the um, reduction on CJT, CGT capital gains tax postponement of uh, um, that further that if they hold on to their property. Mm. Um, and I would have thought that, uh, you know, the obvious thing to do is to, you know, put a ban on evictions in place. Mm. That is yeah. therefore, you know, the landlord can yeah. still sell the property, yeah. but the yeah. tenant remains in place. Yeah. And as we have heard numerous times, that cannot be done because the right to private property rights in the Constitution prevents the government from doing so. And Q, we need a referendum to insert the right to housing in the Constitution. We do, absolutely. But even on a temporary basis, it could be mm. done. Surely for Very six true. months or 12 months, they could do it. Yeah. 
Very true, as they did during COVID. Yeah, yeah. certainly. So this like is a consideration the government are have to go. They're going to have to give serious thought to this now, because of what we're possibly facing into. Um, this winter, uh, with the cost of fuel, heat, so on and so forth. Um, but when it comes to, I guess, affordability, um, they, if if let's say they were to reintroduce the moratorium like they did during, um, the worst of the COVID, um, pandemic, a landlord by the end of it, a landlord could still evict if you had rent arrears. So, yeah. um, so the moratorium, a moratorium on evictions in the current context. Um, wouldn't maybe be effective in relation to cost of living, but certainly in relation to the wider housing crisis, yes. But unfortunately, but it, it would we've be, been... It would be in terms of cost of living if someone doesn't have to go try find a, a rental property and they can stay in their existing one and the, because most likely then, then the, the other or new rental property they have to find if they're evicted is going to be a much higher rent than that which they're currently paying. Um, no, in that context, yes. Now, even though technically... In 75% of tenancies, it shouldn't be much higher because the landlord shouldn't be, inc- they shouldn't be increasing the rent between tenancies. But I know yeah. that's all very well and good for me to say on paper. Um, but certainly it is something I think the government are going to have to give strong consideration to. And, um, you know, in Scotland, they've taken action now in relation to that and, and in relation to a freeze on rents also. Um, so that is something I think that they're going to have to give consideration to um, because... While in the rent pressure zones, the increases are limited to 2%, which I, I know, I, I think uh, the Taunish said at one point, it's as good as a rent freeze. Mm. The only thing is, it's only really, well, as good as a rent freeze or whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's only really good if it's effective and is is enforced and adhered to. And I suppose the reports, you know, the DAFT report and the rent, uh, the the RTB rent index would certainly give you cause for concern that it's not being adhered to. So if something like that is brought in, it it needs to be effective. It needs to be adhered to. I suppose in Threshold, we are very much trying to empower uh, renters uh, on this as well, that if they do get a, an unfair rent increase, that they go, no, this isn't okay and I'm not going to pay it. And that can feel really scary, especially when they don't know there's nowhere else to go to and a, a landlord possibly can evict them. But if a landlord tries to evict them again, it, unfairly, we'll stick by them on that as well. So I'm probably making this more complicated than it needs to be. Um, but uh, if there no. is measures like that brought in, they need to be adhered to and enforced. Absolutely. I think it's mm. fundamental and we've yeah. seen you know, our government uh, absolute failure to lead from the the top on this in terms of failure to, you know, register properties for mm-hmm. the RTB mm-hmm. um, and even the failure, I think, of the RTB to enforce maximum penalties on those who breach it. It really is an issue. You know, landlords can be imprisoned if they fail to register for the RTB. Yet how many landlords have been imprisoned as a result of that breach has one. Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of either. But, you know, which raises the question of, of you know, that if you're not enforcing the law, then um, it's clearly going to be broken. And we know the landlords have the power in this situation. Mm. Um, listen, thanks for that, Anne-Marie. Um, going to go on to Colette Bennett from Social Justice Ireland. Colette, in terms of housing, what is Social Justice Ireland recommending? main ask is that there's an additional 1.4 billion put in for social housing. So that would bring the level of social housing or sorry, the level of, of capital expenditure up to about 4 billion. If all that was used 
for building social housing yeah. um, as opposed to turnkey developments. You'd have about 14,500 bills um, at the rate that it would cost for the, the government to step in, the state to actually be the developer. Um, do that over 10 years and you've doubled your housing stock to 18 to 20%, which will be in line with what Housing Europe, um, their research around other European countries that would be, I suppose, similar in, in economy to ourselves mm. um, or economically to ourselves. So that is the kind of thing that that we would be calling for. So you would be well aware, as would would everybody else on this this podcast, um, you know, the housing for all targets grossly underestimate the need. So even if the 90,000 were met, which they're unlikely to be, um, they're still only hitting three quarters of what is currently needed. There's still about 133,000 uh, people or 1,000 households um, in need of social housing at the moment. So 90,000 just isn't going to cut it mm. uh, in 10 years time. Uh, it doesn't take into account pent up demand or the full extent of pent up demand. And it doesn't take into account any new additions um, we've seen, for example, um, the the government make let's make hay out of a crisis, I suppose. Um, and what was being kind of put on Ukrainian refugees and and some of the blame in terms of the housing crisis. We had a housing crisis before Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February. Absolutely, um, yeah. And in terms of so that's our big ask. Our big ask is around social housing. You build social housing. You appropriately appropriately accommodate the 60,000 plus households who are in HAP tenancies in the private rented sector. And that gives them some long term security in relation to their own accommodation. But it also then frees up a significant amount of private rental Uh, accommodation. Just explain briefly to listeners, some listeners might be aware, but some mightn't in terms of what turnkey development is. So that's basically the state buying from a developer at just under market price. I think that the the rule of thumb is about 10% uh, rather than them contracting at a competitive tender process, contracting builders themselves and actually going and building the, the properties. So you can get a, a three bed for about 255 if the state actually built or contracted builders to do it. Yeah. Um, you're not getting a three bed for 255 you know, from a from a private developer at the moment. Um, so we're paying well above the odds. So that would be our in terms of our construction uh ask, that would be that would be that. Um, like Anne-Marie and Louise, we have considered uh, con- significant concerns in relation to the rental market and affordability in particular. Yeah. Um the silk data for 2021 contained actually the the data around arrears in the last 12 months and it breaks it down by tenure and actually mm. 16.2% of renters who responded, so actually, sorry, 16.2% of the population when it's worked up, uh, were in arrears at least once in the previous 12 months up to 2021. That's not sustainable. Um, so, so something needs to be done there. We have a code of conduct on mortgage arrears. It works to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the the lender that you're with or the the non-bank entity that you're with. We need something similar in relation to a code of conduct on rent arrears. Um, We had something akin to it for local authority mortgages. We've been calling for the same thing for local authority rents. So, for example, we know that there's a, a high proportion of local authority rent arrears. 
Um, a lot of that is not, you know, just basic non-payment. A lot of that is from calculations, miscalculations. Uh, so there's administrative error worked within the system. Um, but that nuance get lost, gets lost in the narrative. And we hear about scroungers and spongers and people not paying their way. And it's really, really damaging. It's societally damaging. But it means that we we look to the market to give us our solutions when actually the, the the errors are baked into the state systems, if you actually change the systems, you'd get a better outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And anything else then in terms of recommendations around housing for the budget? So we have a number of recommendations. I mean, we would like to see HAP tapered off and you, that money used then, I suppose, in that kind of 1.4 billion, that investment into actual bills for social housing and moving away from the private sector for all of the reasons that Anne-Marie and Louise have already said. Uh, we'd like to see regeneration for social housing developments that currently exist. So they were gutted in the 80s and 90s in terms of the amenities that are that surrounded them. Um, so it's little wonder that there are objections to new buildings, new estates mm. being built in peripheral areas because those communities can't absorb a hundred or a thousand new uh, households because they, they're they, the education system isn't there for them. The creches aren't there for them with the increase in, in built to rent with no amenities attached to those. It means that existing amenities are on their knees. So we're looking for a hundred million um, in terms of development and support for existing communities. And we're also looking for a hundred million for um, a, a mortgage equity scheme. So there currently exists an equity scheme for new purchasers of new yeah. build properties. Uh, we are fundamentally against it because it does not make properties any more affordable. What it does is it bridges the affordability gap. So it creates an additional layer of debt uh, for people who cannot afford a property um, that artificially increases their deposit income, but it actually doesn't make the property actually affordable. Uh, however, the system exists and it is in place and it was launched this year. What we're looking for is the other side of the, the the coin, I suppose, the other end of the spectrum in terms of what that system could properly do. So we know there's almost five and a half thousand house, mortgages um, and so that they won't all be that won't be five and a half thousand households necessarily. Some people mm. may have remortgaged and have two mortgages on their, their property. Um, but we know that there are five and a half thousand anyway um, mortgages that are 10 years plus in arrears. These are people that have been getting phone calls, getting letters that yeah. have been trying to work within the system that don't meet whatever the criteria, you know, has been put in place in relation to insolvency arrangements, in relation to code of conduct, mortgage arrears, resolution targets. Um, and they are at risk of homelessness. So what we are looking for the state to do is to put in place a pilot scheme where the state takes equity in the properties Um rather than than just having this kind of limbo for these households. That would be one of a suite of measures. We'd like to see mortgage to rent revamped. I mean, I know it was there was a revision in I think February 2014. Um, and there hasn't really been anything done since there were some tinkerings around the edges this February. But again, it's not going to increase uh, significantly the number of, of households who can go through uh, for mortgage to rent. So they become tenants of the local authority or an AHB rather than than 
um, mortgage or sorry, owner occupiers with a mortgage, um, there needs to be a, a broader suite of options for people um, it, again to avoid homelessness. And I would absolutely fundamentally agree with Anne-Marie that there just isn't enough being done uh, for homeless prevention. So we know for the last number of years, the, the, tar- or the budget has been about 10 million. When you're looking at hundreds of million for uh, private homeless services yeah, and over you know, emergency million. accommodation. Yeah, over 200 million a year on the emergency accommodation in contrast to, as you say, 10 million on prevention. It's over 20 times. Um, and thanks for that, Colette. Um, Louise, just in terms of Focus Ireland, is there anything else that you're recommending that should be done in the budget around to prevent homelessness? Yeah, we have a five really trying to support landlords not to move out of the market while we're in the current situation. So we're acknowledging there is, it's no longer, as you know, a a crisis anymore. It's an an absolute emergency. So we've devised this five-point plan that is basically asking um, to support landlords um, and uh, so that they don't sell up at the moment. And it, we see it as a short-term measure, but just something to hold it until the proper housing is, is built. We need to keep landlords in. So that would be one of the big things that we would be pushing this time. And, and what that are you proposing? Well, well, some of the things would be around tax breaks, but more specific about tax breaks, linking into the cost of living would be tax breaks if there was retrograde retro, <laughs> work done to bring housing up to higher energy um, BOR ratings yeah. so that they, they would, you know, so they reduce the cost of living. What we're seeing is very unfair carbon taxes being imposed on people who have no control over their usage of their heating in their houses because they're subject to what the landlord is going to do. So we would definitely support landlords being supported to do this work that will benefit their capital investment, but more importantly, reduce the cost of living um, for people who are in those tenants. So there's a suite of those type of proposals. It is about, uh, and very much again, what Anne-Marie was saying about eviction, banning evictions, like absolutely banning evictions. So so that if so, sales did happen, that they would be tenants in situ um, and that at least there'd be some sort of, so, so stability for people who are waiting for that, as I said, that letter to be dropped through the letterbox and, and be subject to moving out of their homes. And in terms of, because the obvious thing around, to me anyway, the, the keeping the tenants in situ is that local authorities um, and AHBs can buy, but local authorities in particular, because they're the ones responsible for, for dealing with homelessness, um, that they have the funds and to buy uh, that, that is the place, Rory, and I know it's something that, especially in Dublin, Dublin City Council, are really doing that. And where there is a tenancy at risk, and um, because a landlord is selling, specifically if there's high needs, you know, if there's a child who has a disability or an adult with a disability or an older person, that they will come in and buy the house. But there's, we but that is only literally that's only been changed very recently, and very still recently, again. and and there are also issues with it because yeah. the case came up very very recently where we had a woman in that situation, and the council went to buy it, and because. There was an issue with the attic being used or, you know, not having planning permission for the attic conversion. They wouldn't buy the house. So the family ended up being evicted anyway. One of the things we said was, well, can we at least see what could be done to make it compliant? Can we hold, you know, hold the family in the house? But the answer was no. So, again, those type of flexibility. Yeah, ridiculous. And very much what Anne-Marie said, if there was a prevent more money put into that prevention of homelessness, that type of issue could be 
seen as, you know, this is a preventative measure. This is a family by paying for planning permission, uh, you know, an architect to do up correct plans and get the correct planning mm. permission. That type of thing could have been done in that case. It wasn't. So, yeah, definitely we would be pushing for the council to come in and buy those houses where people are are, are at risk of homelessness. Buy yeah. from the landlords directly because it's a way of replenishing the stock. And we know mm. the, the house is already yeah. suitable for the family if they're in it already. Yeah. My own view is that tax breaks for the landlords isn't going to work because they're not staying in it. Um, they're not going to stay in it if you, if there's tax reductions. It's because the property prices have gone so high. They now know that they're either at the, they're probably at the height they're going to be. They're only going to fall in the coming years. Um, and therefore, it's about selling up now. And I think that, you know. I, I think there is at that point, Rory, but there is, there has been an awful lot more um, legislation brought into place, which is good because it's to protect tenants. But mm. for one individual tenant landlord it is difficult for instance they have to now register with the rtb annually whereas before they didn't have to it was at the change of tenancy so all this additional paperwork does make it confusing for landlords we're not making it easy for them to stay there um if there's a tip in the balance we want to support them i don't think it's the only solution and certainly i think buying up from landlords who are willing to sell is probably the best solution but i think at this stage we are in an emergency we need to throw everything we can at it um, and try to make the private rental market a little bit more um, appealing for landlords in the short term anyway. Mm. Um, I, I think it's, I just, I think regardless of whether, I, I just don't think it would work. I think that it's the ban on evictions and combined with the buying the properties is the, the ban on eviction is absolutely crucial. You know? I think that we need to, if it was declared, if housing crisis was declared a national emergency, I think because I, I take on Anne Marie's point that, you know, under constitutional, it is difficult to bring in that blanket ban on evictions, but we were able to do it in a public health crisis. So I think it, it was a public health emergency and we were able to do it in that circumstance. It is now time that we declare this a public health emergency because it is a public health putting mm -hmm. people out onto the streets when there's no even emergency accommodation is a public health and i think it is time for us to look at those really what the, the government would call extreme measures what we would call sensible measures of banning banning evictions yeah yeah amory i think you want to come in there yeah in relation to tax measures to retain landlords in the sector this is something that we've looked at a good bit over the last few years, I suppose, in threshold in particular, like you know, we, we started to see that shift in the issues that were being brought into us, the more and more notices of termination, more and more for sale, and then more and more that were valid. <laughs> you know where the, the, these are legitimate landlord is selling up and leaving yeah. the sector so yeah we spent quite a bit of time looking at it and uh, wanted to make sure we want to make sure that any measures that are brought in are targeted measures so rather than a sweeping relief for all landlords whether they're planning to leave or not so what we've um sort of uh, settled on is a proposal where a landlord sells the property to an AHB or a local authority then in that scenario, they would pay a reduced capital gains tax. Mm. So it means that you're actually targeting the landlords who who intend on sell on selling and you're incentivizing them to sell to the AHB or local authority as opposed to go to open market. And yeah. so and then the tenant can become a local uh, a social housing tenant or if there's somebody who isn't entitled to social housing and um, we propose that that property become a cost rental property. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. I suppose it, it it's 
it's it's it changes the narrative a little bit from what I suppose we have been talking about. So keeping landlords in the sector to okay, keeping tenants in their homes. Exactly. So yeah. the home does go from private rental to social rental, uh, but at least the the tenant is still in the home and they then have a secure long term uh, home. So yeah. No, I think that's. I think you know there's absolutely merit in that in terms of that targeted. Um, intervention around that, but I was struck. I was listening to one of the media there, and um, uh, one of the the uh, ministers, government ministers, was asked about the evidence behind. You know, what evidence had they done research and evidence was there behind the proposal to reduce capital gains tax? And they said none. <laughs> there was no evidence. Which, of course, is just it's yeah, it's mad how they'll pick certain policies that have no evidence base behind them, and then criticize us and others for putting proposals that they say, "Oh, where is your evidence base behind it?" Um, Colette, in terms of the question of um the the, the increase in building. Um, where would the capacity come from is a big question. I've advocated for a state construction company to be set up immediately to start that and also to um, expand the likes of Okulon um, and uh, also redirecting construction workers away from hotels. But do you have any work and how would you increase that capacity very, very quickly in terms of delivery? If you're talking about putting an extra 1.4 billion into capital, which I think we absolutely need. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, we're probably not too far away, but we wouldn't be looking for a, a, a state construction company necessarily, just that the state is allowed to procure at um, the competitive tender rates and at scale uh, to be able to build this kind of level. In terms of capacity in the construction industry itself, um, there's a couple of things to it. So you've got the the actual builders, the people who can do the work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're told time and time again that that is it's becoming increasingly difficult to source. Uh, however, you know, again, not not getting rid of a crisis. Um, you know, we are looking at the business end of a recession by any measure in the next number of years. That means that that kind of I suppose we need to prioritise the the type of build projects that we have, and social housing should be a priority, should be number one priority, and um, in terms of the as as Louise said, the health benefits that it has, and um, the societal benefits that it has across the board. Uh, so it's not just in terms of social housing tenants, but actually there is a wider benefit for for all of society uh, if we do that. Um, so I think we need to, to prioritise that. And then in terms of the actual bills themselves, I think Okulon have an excellent model um, and that is something that should be explored again to scale up. But also we need to move away from concrete. We need to look at different methodologies. We need to look at offsite and essentially, you know, uh, uh, I'm not saying regulations should be um, undermined in any way, but essentially a flat pack house that you can build in terms of the modular, modular housing, housing, which they're exactly. developing. Yeah. Uh, modular housing that you can build that is of quality that is that will be sustainable that can be lived in um that has a high BEUR rating um and that will last and you know we need to explore things like that because they are cheaper to be able to do than what we're currently doing which is this over reliance of of use of concrete which also is incredibly environmentally damaging yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Colette. Okay, listen, unfortunately, we have to come to a close, but lots of really good solutions there. One last one, um, Anne-Marie or Louise, you might want to respond to. Do you think we will see um, a specific allocation for a referendum on housing in the budget? Uh, well, given the fact that the Housing Commission isn't to report until November, uh, I'd be surprised. 
Um, okay. But it was mentioned last year on Budget Day at the press conference afterwards. So hopefully some good journalist will ask uh, if they if they're intending on doing that. But then again, they, you know, they have committed to a referendum. If one's going to happen, it's likely next year. So fingers crossed they put in money for a generic referendum. Um, mm. But, but it, I, it wouldn't be necessary to allocate that specific uh, a thing in a budget for it to happen or not. Uh, I don't think so. Louise? Yeah, I, I'm i not expecting to see a, a, an allocation for it. But I'm just going back to something that did happen about... There was probably three, three, four years ago now. There was an allocation for, uh, for maintenance review group. Regina Doherty at the time said yeah. um, one of the recommendations from the CEDAW report in 2017 was that we would look at establishing a maintenance review group, and she did do an allocation in that budget for uh, in 2017 or 2018 for. 150,000 for that maintenance review group and that was named so sometimes they can be very specific about naming such a small amount like 150,000 yeah. so it would be interesting to see if it's there or not but I wouldn't be hopeful as Anne-Marie said they're going to wait and say that they haven't got the results of the all the submissions and the review group so I don't think we'll be expecting that on the day but as Anne-Marie said it'd be lovely to see if a clever journalist asks on the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an important question because if it starts running into next year and it's not clear, then it starts to slip further. Um, and I think that it's absolutely essential in terms of all these things that we put across today that we need that right to housing referendum um, put in the Constitution to push all these policies in place, um, no matter what government is in place. Louise, Amory, Colette, thank you so much for joining me today on Reboot. Thanks, thank Rory. Good talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. And we will talk to you all very soon. Thank you so much to our listeners, as always, for uh, supporting us, for supporting the Tortoise Shack, the Reboot Republic podcast. You can go over to um, patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack, support us to keep going. And also as well, share the podcast around if you can on social media, let people know you're listening. Uh, We really appreciate that. And thank you so much to all the feedback we've had on the recent podcast. And we will talk to you all very soon. 